Well, if you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. Chapter 9. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. So Isaiah 9, verse 1. God says there in Isaiah 9, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice, at, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and God, we thank you for this day, this day to gather here, to be reminded of of how you sent your one and only son to save us from our sins. Uh, this one who was prophesied about thousands of years before he came. That he would be our savior. That he would redeem us and save us from the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for, for this, this wonderful text that points us to the greatness of Christ, that, that reminds us of the darkness that is all around us, but that the light of Christ has shown, giving us hope and cause for joy and cause for rejoicing in the midst of a sinful and broken world. Lord God, I ask that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word, so that every heart might confess that Christ is Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I told you all that I saw uh, an article uh, online a couple of weeks ago that was called Psychological Reasons Why People Are Decorating Early for Christmas. And uh, I, must, I must admit, I was one of those people who decorated extra early this year. But as I read the article, one psychologist said, people are longing for happiness and joy this year. This year has been a significant year of grief and loss, loss of freedom, loss of time with family, loss of income and jobs, and loss of loved ones, just to name a few. As such, people are seeking comfort and even healing. People seeking comfort and healing, leading to one of the reasons why people have decorated early. Friends, as as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have something far greater than lights to bring comfort and healing to our world. Few things really represent the, the beginning of the Christmas season 
than the appearance of lights, right? Lights on trees and houses, and, and, and uh, we are drawn to lights. There's no denying it. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we took our kids to, up to Bass Lake, and we drove around, and uh, there, there was a section that was decorated really nice. And uh, then we drove across, we drove uh, along the lake, and uh, there was, it was kind of sad. There was only like a few houses that were lit up. But our kids loved it. The, there were barely lit houses, and they just lit up. They thought it was incredible just to see one strand of lights. We went back, and we went to another section where Jerry and Sharon live, and that was much better than where we originally went. But, but they loved it. It was kind of sad, frankly, that they thought it was so incredible to just see one strip of lights. But friends, we're drawn to lights because we're drawn to beauty. But friends, lights aren't just beautiful. In, in Scripture, light is symbolic. They are symbolic reminders. Symbolic reminders that the world that we live in is a dark place. And, and that's why lights are often seen as so astra- attractive. They draw our attention out of the darkness. Friends, why is the world we live in today, why is it such a dark place? You don't have to read too far in the newspaper if you even read those anymore or, or uh, watch on the news or read headlines on Facebook or Twitter or see posts on Instagram to remind us that darkness surrounds us. But how is the world dark? Why is the world dark? Well, friends, when the Lord created the world, He said it was good, right? Very good. And what happened? Adam and Eve sinned, and along with sin, the brokenness of sin entered the world. And that's why the world we live in is such a dark place. A world that's in rebellion against our Creator. And so in the Bible, darkness refers to two, 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 two things, two truths. It refers to both evil and, and sin, and it also refers to the ignorance or blindness that people have towards God. So in the Bible, darkness represents, first of all, sin and also ignorance. Sin, man and woman, in rebellion against God and also ignorance. So referring to our blindness and our sin to God. So not only rebellion against God, but an unawareness, a blindness to who God is. And we come to our text here in Isaiah 9, and it talks about the people of God. They're, they're surrounded by darkness. All around Israel and Judah at this time that Isaiah is writing, there's darkness. The nation is in rebellion against God living sinfully in rebellion against God. There's also the threat of being conquered by foreign nations like Assyria. Everything about the time in which Isaiah is writing here is dark. In fact, if you turn back to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22, it says there, and they, look, they will look to the earth, but behold, what? Distress and darkness. The gloom of anxious and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Well, what's Isaiah talking about here? Well, Isaiah is living in the 7th, 8th century uh, BC when there was this looming threat of Assyria coming in to destroy and conquer the, the northern, northern portion of Israel. And in fact, in, in 721 BC, that actually happened. The Assyrians swept in and destroyed the northern portion of Israel. And so chapter 8 is really a description of how all of that was going to happen. 
chapter 8, one of the prophecies of Isaiah 8 is about how Isaiah is going to have a son. And the son's name is Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. How would you like to have that as a name? I'll be honest, we didn't consider that when we were naming our son JT. Um, can't imagine uh, his parents, I can't imagine Isaiah getting uh, upset with his son and trying to say his name fast. Uh, this son, as Isaiah 8 says, before he will even know how to say mom and dad, the Assyrians are going to overtake the northern kingdom of Israel. And so for Isaiah and the people of God in Judah, there's Assyria who's conquered the north. And then there's these other nations who are warring with, with Assyria. And they're, gonna, they're threatening Judah, like Assyria. And then ultimately, the Babylonian kingdom is going to come in and sweep them all out and conquer Judah, destroy the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. Sounds like a wonderful life, doesn't it? Here you are, this, 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 this tiny nation. You have all these foreign nations fighting each other all around you. And you're right in the middle of all of these battles, all of these wars, all of these skirmishes. Fear, uncertainty, concern of, over the government. Is there any hope? Am I describing 2020 or am I describing ancient Judah? That's the historical context that we come to in Isaiah chapter 9. Sounds pretty dark, doesn't it? At any minute, this foreign army can sweep in and just completely, utterly destroy your life, your nation, your friends, your family. And so the people in Isaiah 8 and 9, they, they realize that they're not in a good situation. So what are they going to do? Well, we see, we saw also as we read in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 22, that they do what? Where do they look? They look to the earth. We also see, if you skip back up in, in chapter 8, verse 19, they inquire of these mediums and necromancers. They, they look to, to these magicians and sorcerers. They're looking to the earth, the darkness of the earth, to solve darkness. So they can tell in chapter 8 that they're not in a good situation. They're in a dark situation. But they can think that they can overcome the darkness with darkness. They think that they can overcome the darkness with themselves. They're looking to their leaders. They're looking to their experts. Even at times they look to these foreign nations to overcome the darkness, the sinful rebellion they're in. They were thinking on the one hand, we don't need God. We can fix this situation ourselves. And how true this is today, right? Where many look to government to fix their problems. They put their trust in princes or they put their trust in presidents. And friend, brothers and sisters in Christ, as followers of Jesus, we need to be incredibly careful to not become like these here, who uh, uh, make, make politics become an idol itself. There was a reason why Jesus was not born in a Roman emperor's house, or he was born in the White House. God does not need the governments of this world. And if only we have, you know, you often hear people say, well, if only we have the right party, if only we have the right leaders, the right offices, doing the right things, doing the right, 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 then things wouldn't be so dark. Well, how's that working out for some right now? Government can never ultimately fix our problem of the ultimate darkness. But how many trust in governments greater than they trust in God? You know, friends, if only so many 
professing believers were as passionate about the gospel as they were about government, I think the church would look vastly different today. Or, or, or people, they look to their possessions, they look to their finances, the, the stock market. If only the stock market was, was better, if only we had enough money, if only we had more money, well, the market rebounded pretty good this year, didn't it? But who knows what tomorrow may hold? Will the market, will wealth bring you out of darkness? No. Others look to education. We just need to be educated. We just need educated people. Well, our society is pretty educated. They have more degrees and education available to us now than ever. But how's that working out for us? Or others, they say, well, we need better technology. I love technology. It's great when it works. But it's not going to save you either. It won't bring you out of the darkness. In fact, think about all of the darkness like pornography that is so readily available because of technology. Friends, if you look only to the world, like Israel and Judah were here, if you look only to the earth and to human resources, friends, the darkness will only get worse. Because we see in our world that things are not just getting better. We see that it's one dark situation. And friends, that's what Christmas reminds us of. That's the dark and also the the beautiful reality of Christmas. It's a reminder that, yes, we live in a dark world. We see the brokenness all around us, yet there's still beauty, and yet there is still hope in this sin-cursed world. Why? Well, because, as Isaiah writes here in chapter 9, the people who walked in great darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, darkness on them has light shined. So friends, despite all of the sin, curse, brokenness, the rebellion against God around us in our own lives, in our own hearts, there's hope. There's hope, why? Well, because we see in verses 1 and 2, there's hope because of this light that has shined. The darkness and the gloom are all about us, but the darkness will not last forever. The people of God here in Isaiah, they're in distress. In Isaiah's time, they were in great distress just like today. But that darkness will not last forever. We see in verse 1, he makes mention of of these two tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, these are two of the northern tribes of Israel. They're west of the Jordan. These tribes were a part of the Galilee region. And they were often, when, when, when foreign invaders would come in, they were the first tribes to be conquered. But we see here this promise. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee. Now, what important person came from Galilee? Anybody important come from there? Anyone come to mind? Jesus, right? Jesus launched his ministry in the Gospels from Galilee. Why was he in Galilee? Why, why does Luke write in Luke 4, verse 14, why does he say Jesus returned in power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in the synagogue, being glorified by all. Why did Jesus begin in Galilee? Because of this promise here in Isaiah 9. The fulfillment of this promise that light has dawned. Notice as well that, that the, 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 the tense that's used in verse 2. 
He uses walked, seen, shine, shown. See that verse 2? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now doesn't it sound as if that already happened? They've already seen this light? Well, at, at times the prophets in the Old Testament would speak of a future event in the perfect tense. Meaning that they would use this tense as if it had already happened. As if this event had already happened. When Isaiah wrote, they had not yet seen this light. Because this light was coming through Christ. To Isaiah, this prophecy is so certain, he describes it as if it has already happened. He's pointing to how salvation has shined upon the people. And that is seen in Jesus Christ, who is described in John 8 as the light of the world. So there's hope because the light has dawned. There's also this call for rejoicing in verses 3 and and following. There's this call here. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. When Isaiah was speaking this, the people around him probably would have said, is he crazy? What is he talking about? There is nothing to be joyful about. We're about to be destroyed by a foreign army. We see that God makes this promise to multiply the nation. Even though they're about to be conquered, even though they're about to be led off into exile, there's this promise that God's people will multiply. No longer will they be a small remnant. There will be a great harvest and rejoicing will come as a result of that harvest. And as one can see at the end of the Bible in Revelation, before the throne of God, there's going to be a great multitude of people from every nation and tribe and language who are doing what? Praising the God who saves. So Isaiah sees this this promise of of multiplication of the Gospels, we could say, going forth and saving people from all across the world. And that gives him cause, and that gives us cause for joy in the midst of the dark world in which we live. He goes on and describes in verses 4 through 7 even more reasons for rejoicing. Verse 4, we see that one of the reasons for rejoicing is God breaks this yoke of oppression. Verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So God's going to bring about this mighty deliverance. He's going to break this yoke of oppression. The people of God will no longer face the the difficulty of being conquered. They're going to be released. But even greater than that, God will break the, the yoke of sin. 2 Peter verse 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 24 says, Jesus does this because He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, we have been healed. In other words, the people of God will no longer face the punishment for their sins because Christ bore their punishment. And He talks about the day of Midian. It's a reference to Judges, the book of Judges. God used Gideon and his insignificant army of 300 to overthrow Midian, the nation oppressing Israel and judges. And so God is saying, so too, God uses Jesus, someone who in the eyes of the world is insignificant, to overthrow the greatest power of oppression in the world, the oppression of sin and death. 
So why can we have hope? Why is there cause for rejoicing in the midst of darkness? Because God is breaking and has broken through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the greatest oppression in our life, and that is the punishment for sin, and that is death. We also have reasons for rejoicing in verse 5. that uh, We see, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Because this light has shined, the weapons of war, that's what being described there, the gear of war is no longer needed. The gear of war is not needed because the light of Jesus has dawned. The light of Christ has come. There will be one who would deliver his people and he will bring peace and goodwill. That's why, as I read at the beginning of of the service, at Jesus' birth, it, it was announced, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. But then we have even this greater cause for hope. This child, the child who is to be born. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's going to be one who comes one day who will be a deliverer. There will be rejoicing of God's people because a deliverer the Messiah, the Christ, will come and break this yoke of oppression. The garments of war will no longer be needed because a child has been born. And this child brings with him the light of God because of who he is. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Friends, this birth, the birth of this child, is a gift of God's grace because of what he will accomplish. Friends, he is... Mighty God. This is a historical event. Isaiah is emphasizing that this is actually going to happen. He is the mighty God, yet He's born. No other religion claims this. He is, Jesus is a human being, and He is God. Fully man and fully God. Word of the Father, now in flesh, appearing. And we see that this is a historical event that really happen we see that the government is going to be upon his shoulders the the world powers that are threatening the people of god this one is going to be born the one to whom all authority in heaven on earth is is given and the government will not be an earthly government it will be an eternal kingdom what child is this who is this child well i've already said it You already likely know it. Jesus Christ, the Lord. And and look how he is described. Look at the names that are given to this child. Wonderful counselor. A counselor is somebody who is able to make plans. They are a ruler who will make wise plans, whose wisdom is beyond any the world has ever seen. This idea of wonderful, now that word is actually a lot stronger than how it's translated. It carries with it that he himself is a wonder. And it carries with it that the impression that he is divine. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. This title is a title of the Lord himself, used all throughout the scriptures. What we have here is really a hint of the Trinity in the Old Testament, the 
fullness of the Godhead, of, uh, of God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equally God. This child being mighty God is able to save all fully who trust in Him. Friends, some have tried to explain away the, the, the usage of God here, but in the book of Isaiah, the word used for God is a used for only God alone. It's not saying that this child will be kind of like God, but that he is actually God in the flesh. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. Well, wait a minute. I thought it was Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. Well, the Father here, everlasting Father, likely carries with it the idea of what a Father was meant to do as a protector. Isaiah is not using the Trinitarian title of Father here, as in God the Father, but that the child to be born will be like a Father who is going to protect and provide for His people. Protect them by interceding for them. Providing for them by giving them life when there was only death. And notice as well, Prince of Peace. War and oppression will be no more. Thus he is the Prince of Peace. He is the ruler who will bring true peace, who will bring rest to the nations. Not in the earthly form of peace yet, but peace with God. There's going to be an eternal peace that will come in the new heavens and the new earth. But first, must, uh, first one must be at peace with God. As Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, brothers and sisters here today, I ask you, are you at peace with God? Have you placed your faith in Him? Have you trusted in Him as your only hope for salvation? Are you at peace with God today? Jesus came so that you would know Peace with God. He came so that you could know who God is. He came so that you could be saved from your sins. So are you at peace with Him today? I hope and pray that every one of you can say before you leave here today that you have placed your faith in Jesus and that you are at peace with God. But notice it doesn't stop there. That's not the end. There's a promise of this coming kingdom. The throne of David. Remember last week that we saw in Matthew 1, there's this promise of, of the, that was given to David that, that one of his descendants would be on the throne for all eternity, as we see from this time forth and forevermore. So what child is this, friends? This is Christ the King. Isn't this a wonderful mystery? How wonderful and how mighty God is described here. God has described Jesus here. Jesus is the light that has dawned. The light of the world has come, exposing the darkness, exposing our sin, and breaking the power of canceled sin, who has come to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. You mean that this is Jesus, that this Jesus, this child spoken of here, this Savior, the Christ, you mean that He died for you? Yes. He died to save His people from their sins. Isn't it incredible? This wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, He came for you. For you to be saved from your sins. You see, the message and the beauty 
of the light of Christmas shows us, on the one hand, that we are so lost, that we're so incapable of saving ourselves, that nothing less than the eternal Son of God Himself can save us. Friends, that's how dark our state is. That's how dark our lives are. There is nothing, absolutely nothing. There is no one, there is nothing we can look to for salvation, for light, for salvation from our sins. There's nothing we can do, no matter of government, of education, of riches, nothing. There is nothing that we can look to to bring us out of this present darkness that we find ourselves in other than the Lord God Himself. Friends, the only way to get out of this darkness is to accept the greatest gift of Christmas, and that is God Himself. First of all, by admitting that you are a sinner who needs to be saved by grace. Friends, the coming of Jesus Christ reminds us and proves to us that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. That things are actually so bad that God had to come Himself to save. See, friends, the Bible doesn't explain away our sinful nature. We saw last week in Matthew 1, right, that even those who are included in the genealogy of Jesus had a very uh, moral genealogy. No, all of them failed, right? All of them were sinners. The Bible paints a clear picture of the lostness, of the darkness that we find ourselves in. And there is nothing we can do to pull ourselves out of this darkness. But praise God that He came down. So look to Him in faith and hope for your salvation. Brothers and sisters, we're surrounded by darkness. There's darkness all around us. There's darkness inside of us. We don't understand the joy of salvation that's spoken of here until we understand just how dark our own lives are. Until you understand the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of yourself, until you understand the darkness that we find ourselves in, you won't understand how incredible this message of salvation is, how joyful and how we are to rejoice in light of it. You don't understand how good the gospel is until you realize how lost and how dark you are. Friends, don't you feel the brokenness around you? Do you feel the brokenness inside of you? And when we read these, these, uh, these passages, these uh, prophecies about the coming of Jesus, it just sounds so perfect, doesn't it? Or are we seeing our, our Christmas carols? Silent Night, I love Silent Night. I don't think it was as silent as, as it was. <laughs> if you've ever been near a birth or a, a baby at night, don't sleep, at least my kids don't, <laughs> still don't. In a stable, probably not too silent. Probably not all is calm and all is bright. I, I, love, I still love to sing them though. Because I think it's also kind of a glimpse of, of the, the, the peace and the, the perfection that's going to come one day. But it, it just looks, it sounds so Perfect. When you, you look at these promises here, they sound so great, but then you look around you, and you're discouraged. Discouraged by the brokenness around you, discouraged by the brokenness inside of you. That's why I, I, I love that song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It is, it is a hard song to sing congregationally. 
You guys sung it great, so please don't take offense. I'm not saying you sang it bad. <laughs> but it is a hard song to sing. And it, but it's not sung often. I think it's the first time we've ever sung it here. But it's, it's not sung, likely, because overall it's pretty dark, right? Did you catch those lyrics? There, uh, in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's pretty dark, right? But the man who wrote it, he was a widowed father whose son was injured during the Civil War. He was concerned over, uh, over his son making it. He wasn't sure if he was going to live. And he was going to visit his son and he hears these Christmas bells ringing all around him. And, and it sounds so good, it sounds so perfect, but his life is broken. He lost his wife. He's thinking he's going to lose his son. You hear his brokenness come out. But the song doesn't just end with there's despair, in despair I bowed my head, there's no peace on earth I said. No, no, he, he's thinking about this darkness, but then he hears those bells again. And it says, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Even in the midst of these beautiful songs that we sing at Christmas time, we can feel this brokenness around us. We can feel the brokenness inside of us. Brothers and sisters, friends, however dark or however bright this particular season you find yourself in today, know that the light of Christ has shone forth and there is a promise of hope and peace, of after darkness light. And that we can rejoice even in the midst of this broken and sin-cursed world we live in. Because as Isaiah writes here in verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Friends, when you are drawn to the beauty of light around you at Christmas time, whether it's just one strand of lights like my kiddos, or a house that lights up the whole neighborhood this Christmas season, do not forget who those lights are meant to point us to. The Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the Lamb of God, the mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, who takes away the sin of the world. So this Christmas season, in the midst of all of the extra brokenness it seems that we have around us, know that there is hope and that we can have joy in the midst of darkness, because the light of Jesus Christ has shone forth and He has come to break the power of sin. Let's pray. Father, we come before You now. And Lord, it seems like, especially this year, we are extra aware of the brokenness, of the sinfulness all around us. And yet it seems like these songs are even more meaningful this year. Because of the hope that they bring. Because of the light that is found in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that the light of Jesus Christ would shine in our hearts and in our lives, exposing our sinfulness, exposing our ignorance, our rebellion against you. And I pray that today, all those who are here would come to know Jesus and know that there is light 
And there is hope in the midst of this broken world. And that's why Jesus came down. That's why he left the glories of heaven. He humbled himself even to death on the cross. He came as a baby in a manger to bring us peace with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.